in uh, way of announcements, uh, just uh, know that uh, you know Planned Parenthood has got a whole new program that they've instituted, and we have a, a couple in our church that are trying to make people aware of it and uh, going to the meetings and all. And if you're interested in coming alongside Alan and, and uh, Naomi, uh, let them know. And they'll let you know when the meetings are and the different things that are going on. And, and if you're interested and have some questions, they may be able to answer some of those for you as well in reference to this uh, current uh, program. But it's... Uh, it's not like anything, if you think you had sex education in, in school, and, and even my age, you know, there, there was some of that. Uh, the, uh, you know, it's, it's, you didn't have what they're getting right now. It's, uh, it's amazing. So, uh, just keep that in, in prayer in the way of announcements, uh, keep that up. And also, um, in the way of prayer, uh, I wanted to let you know that uh Ricky Clark you know she uh they were here uh, last week and they they went down to uh uh LA for I you know she's going to have eye surgery and the eye surgery went very very well and this was her comment to me she says See, I'm seeing things I could only imagine before so it's amazing you don't realize sometimes you've gotten used to a particular way of viewing things, and and, and all of a sudden you you have a, uh, something removed or cleared up, and and that's where she's at, and she was just thrilled, and so she wanted to know, let you know, and to say thank you for your prayers, and uh, then Ted's traveling, I keep him in prayer. Uh, my wife overdid uh, yesterday at work, so if you can keep her in prayer, I'd appreciate it. And then my son is uh, driving down to San Francisco to pick up a, a friend as a cancer patient who's uh, had surgery down there. And so uh, just uh, keep, keep him in prayer as they travel. So uh, let's pray together. Father, we, can, we continue to uh, come to you and, and bring our needs before you asking for Your mercy and Your grace, Your healing hand. Uh, we thank You for the good news for Ricky and uh, ask that, that uh, the healing would be complete and, 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 and there would be no complications of any kind. Uh, be with those who are traveling, we think of Ted especially, and, and just keep them safe. Uh, we, I think of my wife and, and, and uh, just the fact that... Uh, how uh, they need uh, people at work and, and stuff and have, finding it hard to find employees. And I, I know there's a lot of other uh, companies with the same problems. And so we just ask, Lord, that you would bring uh, people to, to a point of, of uh, willing to work and to accept jobs and, and uh, just fill those gaps, Lord. And, Father, we also continue to see all the news going on uh, uh, different responses and different things in reference to uh, the COVID virus. And we just ask, Lord, that you would be with our leaders and we with the scientists and those who are, are uh, trying to figure out how to deal with this and give them wisdom and insight and understanding 
so that we could see this thing on the run and, uh, be, and, and see it gone. And we ask for your divine wisdom and, and, and intervention in this as well. We thank you. We love you. And I ask now that as we open your word together, you would open our hearts and our minds to receive. In Jesus' name, amen. The uh, books that we're looking at this morning as we're going through the Bible uh, are Ezra and Nehemiah. And uh, we're looking at them together. And, and uh, you know, I, I would have, I've had, you know, people, one person ask me, uh, you know, combining these books and stuff together, is that a difficult thing to do? Well, with Ezra and Nehemiah especially, no, it's not. Uh, Ezra and Nehemiah were initially a single book in the uh, Hebrew Bible in the Old Testament. And, and so uh, the, uh, only uh, you know, in what you would call recent history, which would be multiple centuries, but uh, have the, did it become two separate books. And so... They, they encompass a lot of the same information and they overlap in many ways, including Ezra's appearance in the book of Nehemiah. So, uh, we'll be going through that this morning. The, what we're looking at is the, is the, the rebuilding of the, of the, the temple and the wall around the city of Jerusalem. And, what had happened was in, in, in the early uh, 600s, it was probably around 606 thereabouts, 606 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian uh, king, uh, just completely, you know, they started, you know, coming at uh, Israel and eventually just uh, completely destroyed the city and leveled the temple. And they, this was their way of... Uh, gaining control over people, you know, take what's most important from them. And then not only that, uh, the Babylonian uh, people, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, not only him, but other uh, leaders in that era as well, the, the next thing they would do was to transfer people to different locations. So, you know, the story of Daniel and, and, and others, uh, they, were, they found themselves in Babylon and, and other places. And uh, so that was also to weaken the, the idea of being able to have people rise up together to, to come against. They would take especially their princes and their leaders and, and move them out into various uh, areas where they didn't even have much contact with each other as well as not being able to get back to Israel and in, in that sense, leave them without leaders. And then they would move captive people into the areas that they were filling up. So Israel had people that came in, and that created a lot of problems. Many of you think especially of the Samaritans and why they were so disliked, and that's almost a soft word, uh, they were really quite uh, hated uh, by the Hebrew people. And the reason was is because they were half Jewish and half 
whatever these people that had moved in, because there was a, a minimum amount of, of, of husband and wife material, they, the way things were moved around, and uh, they intermarried. And that made them uh, some, uh, basically anathema to a, a Hebrew. And so you have all of this going on uh, behind the scenes, so to speak, of what we're going to talk about today. Uh, in 539 B.C., the Babylonian Empire fell and uh, was conquered by Cyrus, king of Persia. And it's interesting uh, uh, that the, the gap between 606 and, and, and 536, uh, which is when the, 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 the people start to uh, migrate out of, uh, out of, out of uh, the Cyrus's empire, uh, the king of Persia, and, and it's 70 years. And there was an interesting prophetic uh, verse that comes out of Isaiah that uh, points to uh, this very specific thing. And I, I would like to share it with you uh, this morning. Uh, Isaiah uh, 44, verses 28, and actually into chapter 45. Who says of Cyrus, He is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, She shall be built, and of the temple your foundation shall be laid. Thus says the Lord to his anointed to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. I will go before you and, and level the exalted places. I will break the, the pieces of the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. This is what God is saying about Cyrus who isn't a, a believer. It says that God has raised him up and favored him. And I want you to see from this and catch a hold that God is absolutely sovereign in all things. It is so hard for me sometimes. I, I'm sure it is for you at times too, where you see something and you say, I don't, I don't know how that could be happening. And why does God allow that to happen? But I also understand what a small little view I have of what God is doing as a whole. And I have, that's where faith comes in. I believe that God in His sovereignty has it worked out in such a way that His perfect will will be accomplished and the plan of, 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 of his of salvation and everything will be moved according to his purpose in such a way that everything will work out that when we get to the end of, of, of it all and we see it more from his perspective, we'll say, oh, now I get it. 
But now at times we sit back and we just we, we, we find ourselves a little perplexed and, and sometimes a, a little uneasy uh, as to how to, to fully grasp everything that God is doing. Here, Cyrus was being raised up and, and it was hard to, to see. I mean, he, he conquered all of these countries and, and established a huge, huge kingdom. And, uh, but what he also did was he opened the door for the Jewish people that were in captivity through all these areas that he had conquered. He opened the door for them to return home. In 536, he basically said all the Jews that would like to, to go back home may. Now, tradition has it that somebody showed him his name in Scripture written a couple of hundred years before he was born and, and all that would happen and that that influenced him. But the reality is, is that, you know, he, this was his way of dealing with people, was actually building them up instead of tearing them down. And so Cyrus opens the door for the, uh, the Hebrew people to return home. And, in so doing, we have the book of Ezra and Nehemiah dealing with some of that. In the book of Ezra, the first six chapters, the Jews, as they return to Jerusalem, actually Ezra isn't even mentioned in the first six chapters of the book of Ezra. Uh, and we have a, a, a man by the name of Zerubbabel and another one by the name of Joshua. Not Joshua of the Old Testament in the sense of Moses and all that, but Joshua was a common name. And uh, Zerubbabel was of the lineage of David. And Joshua what happened to be a, a, a Levite. And so they worked together as a, a team, if you will, in coming to Israel and coming back to Jerusalem with the goal to restore the temple. And Zerubbabel was sent by Cyrus uh, uh, as a, uh, a governor, in a sense. He had authority. He had papers uh, that would allow him to get materials and, and, and even money from the treasury uh, in that area uh, that was Cyrus's uh, to, to restore the temple. And so all of this, God has worked out. The temple was going to be restored. And many Jews were allowed to leave. Now, it's an interesting thing. We're talking about hundreds of thousands of Jewish people displaced. Only 50,000 made the trek. And the reason for that was many of the Jews now had been for two and even three generations in captivity had actually made a life for themselves and coming back and starting completely over wasn't appealing to them. And so they, even though they were being called home, and by the way, this is important to understand, God was calling them back. He'd done all of this to open the door for them to come back. Only 50,000 initially came back with Zerubbabel and Joshua. <clears throat> Excuse me. In uh, 515, 
the temple was rebuilt and uh, they, they started uh, their sacrificial system again and they started worship again. Now about this time, if you were looking at, at sequential things, the book of Esther would come in. But we'll get to that in, in next week. And, and uh, what we do is we'll go on to chapter 7 and, 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 verse, uh, and through 10 of Ezra. And we find Ezra now going to Jerusalem. And a second group of captives that had been, that had been in exile, as it's called, uh, went with him. And as they got to Jerusalem, uh, Ezra's job was to declare the Word of God. And when he would do this, he would do it by reading the Word of God. And then it says he explained it. Sound familiar? He was doing expository preaching. <laughs> he would read it and explain it. Read it and explain it. And the people were amazed. They had heard the Word of God before, but now they were hearing it and they were understanding it. And there was actually a, a, a spiritual response coming out of this. The temples rebuilt Everything is looking up. There's a spiritual restoration beginning to move. Warren Wiersbe, I don't know how many of you know him uh, as, an, as a commentator, but he, he wrote these words, to rebuild the temple without reforming the people would have been fully, uh, uh, would be folly. It was easier for Ezra to uh, rebuild the temple than it was to bring the sinful nation back to God. <laughs> In other words, he could have just rebuilding the temple was nothing compared to getting these people who had been exposed through all these the, in all in so many different ways uh, to different religions and different gods, and some of them were were born into that, and now they're coming back to Jerusalem, and they're saying, "Oh, this you know, I, I want to know about the one true God," and that's Ezra's job. So Zerubbabel, the builder, and Ezra, the preacher. And uh, doing quite an amazing job of it. In the book of Nehemiah, we have a, a completely different picture here. This is uh, going on uh, a little bit later. And, and Nehemiah uh, is the uh, cupbearer to the king, Artaxerxes. And... You know, I always thought having the job of cupbearer wouldn't be necessarily all that great. Do you know what the cupbearer did? He tested the king's food. Okay, that was one of the things he did. But he actually was a person, generally speaking, that ended up in an intimate relationship with the king. They actually, you know, exchanged words and counsel together and, and frequently would be, you know, uh, uh, a friend of the king. And so it was actually a fairly influential position. And the king was wise to do it that way because you don't want the cookbearer to be a friend of an enemy because uh, he might poison the food. Uh, and that, by the way, is something that happened more often than one would uh, think about. And so, Nehemiah had a very good job, a very good position. 
And, and as people were coming back uh, and had gone to Jerusalem and returned back, uh, maybe to see family, in some cases maybe uh, weren't going to stay in Jerusalem. There was many people that did uh, return to where they had been. Uh, and, and one of them, he asked, he says, well, tell me, how is it going in, in, in Jerusalem? What's the conditions? And the guy was very somber. You'd have thought he would have been excited to say, oh, the temple's all rebuilt and everything. He said, the city's in ruins. The walls are all down. The gates are all burned and, and destroyed. And it's, it's terrible. The, you know, and what that meant was the temple had been restored, but was at the mercy of any group of people or vandals or, 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 or raiders, and, and so is the whole city. It wasn't a safe place to be. Nehemiah had it in his heart, God put it in his heart, that he needed to go and help get the wall restored so that the city would be one that could be defended. God, he made a, he made a, a, a prayer to God in, in uh, chapter 1, uh, verses 4 through 11, uh, you know, uh, he, he basically was calling God how, how awesome He is and, and then making a confession of sin and then He made His request. Does that sound familiar to you, by the way? Our God... You know, in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. There's a, there was a pattern there that was established that was definitely that of the Hebrew people. And, and this was the way his prayer went. He glorified God and then made a confession of his sin and asked for forgiveness. And then he made his request. Nehemiah ended up getting his request met. Uh, in chapter 2, verses 1 through 8, and I, I would like to just read that passage. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I, referring to Nehemiah, took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad? Seeing you are not sick, This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. See, that was something that you weren't supposed to. If you were serving the king, you should be in a joyous attitude. Then I was very much afraid, and I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins? Now, once you tie your ancestral picture into this, this... You've got to remember, this is the Eastern cultures. Everything hinges off of your ancestry in some way. And so, uh, he, he played that well with Cyrus right there. And uh, he says, And the gates have been destroyed by fire. Then the king said to me, What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. Now, it doesn't say that there's any gap here. 
And I want to suggest to you that this is, is, is what I had a, a professor in, in, in uh, Bible college called the bullet prayers. Basically, boom, I, you know, something that you, you, you said, God help me. And God would know the circumstances that you were in. And, and you don't have time to get on your knees and to, and, and to, to do all the things that you normally would do, but you're, you know, you're just saying, God, I need your help. I need, I need you to cover me or whatever. And, and it might not even be something that you audibly say, but that you think through. Again, understanding God hears our prayers even if we don't verbalize them. I think you, you get, uh, begin to get a, a picture as I look at this of just how awesome God really is. Okay, and and somebody might say, well, why do we bother to uh, give oral prayer? That well, because that's the way we communicate, and 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 it and it establishes the idea of conversation between us and God. But this was a, a quick prayer. Yeah, he, he says. Uh, I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should my face be sad? And my father's graves are, uh, uh, lies in ruins. And the city of my father's graves lies in ruins. Its gates have been destroyed. Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah. To the city of my father's graves that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone and when will you be we return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given to me to the governors of the province beyond the river. That would be the area of, of, of Jerusalem and Palestine that they may uh, let me pass through until I, I come to Judah and, let, <clears throat> and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the, uh, of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked for. The good hand of my God was upon me. Pretty bold. But he knew where he stood with the king and, and uh, he felt God's presence. He says, my God was upon me. So, Nehemiah travels and uh, he's sent to Judah. And when he gets to Judah, to Jerusalem, he privately, uh, quietly, he privately, he quietly examines the ruins around Jerusalem. In fact, he does it somewhat on the sly. He does it at night. And he goes to, around trying to find out what the conditions are, what he's getting into, what it's going to be to restore this. And he's assessing all of this. And he's keeping it very much to himself. And then in chapter 2, he, it says he challenges Jewish leaders with a plan. And there was immediate opposition. 
But Nehemiah proceeds. In chapter 3, the work begins. And in chapter 4, the opposition rises up. You see, there are people there that are not Jewish. They don't want to see the city restored and, and, and strengthened and the Jewish people restored. At one point, these people were their enemies. Moabites, Ammonites, different people of, of the area. And uh, so they started a campaign in, in chapter 4. Uh, it's, it's The first few verses talk about how they were ridiculing and tearing down Nehemiah. And then there was a threat of force. And there were people that were encouraged to complain. There was personal attacks made on him. There was slander and personal threats. They got to the point where when they were building the wall, they had half the people standing guard while the other half were building. And then they got to the point where even those who were building wore their sword on one side and, 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 and carried their loads on the other ready to fight at a moment's notice. And so nothing ever happened. Basically, he, he, he was very, very smart in the way he approached this. But what's most amazing to me is in the sixth chapter, it says, in 52 days, the wall was completed. And again, that was the sign that God had something to do with it. In fact, now, the other people that are looking at what's going on are coming back and saying, there, His God must have something to do with this. You can't, you can't finish. They were talking about all the, the wall was crumbly and burnt and all this kind of stuff. And it wasn't, you know, they were going to have a heck of a time getting anything going. And here, the wall is restored. Now, after the wall is restored, Ezra comes back into the picture here in chapter 8, and he reads the law. And again, he reads the law with a sense of understanding, explaining, just as he had done before. And, and, and it says that uh, there was a great rejoicing going on. People began to confess their sins. There was a, a, a retelling of the history of God and His chosen people going clear back to creation and, 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 and an oral presentation going up to all through the time of God and His interaction with His people, including Abraham and, and uh, going back to Genesis. Uh, you know, Abraham, you remember the, the promise that was made in, to Abraham in Genesis uh, chapter 12? Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your home, uh, your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonest, dishonors you, I will curse. And you, uh, uh, and in you, all the families of the earth shall be Blessed. That was 
dealing with the uh, prophetic picture of, of Christ, actually, that through him, through Abraham, would, he would be in the, the, the establishment of the Hebrew people that Christ would come from. We understand that. None of that was understood then. He just said, you'll be a blessing to all the, all the nations of the world. And, and so this is the thing that they, they were going back and rehearsing all the things that God had done. By the way, in Genesis chapter 3, do you recall what God said to, to uh, the, the devil? You know, in, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, he, he's talking to, uh, you know, he's bringing about the, 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 the punishment and, and, and stuff for the eating of the, uh, the tree of life, which wasn't supposed to happen by Adam and Eve, and Satan's involvement in it. And he says, Satan, you know what's going to happen? There's a seed, a seed, and it was singular. It didn't mean nation. It didn't mean a, a group of people. Seed. A single person is going to rise up. And, and uh, you know, you'll have the opportunity, basically, implied to attack him and tear him down. You're going to bruise his heel. What does it mean to bruise a heel? Well, Achilles tendon, you know, type of picture. What does it mean to bruise him? It means it, 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 to bring him down to the ground and have the opportunity to kill. I mean, that's the, whole, the idea of, of, of this bruising the heel. But he says, but the seed will rise up and crush your head, which means to- totally dethrone you in all your power. All of these things were things that God had done and intervened in the people. And so they rehearsed all of this in, in uh, chapter, uh, in, in, in the ninth chapter of, of Nehemiah. Uh, one person put it this way as I was reading uh, a commentary. Spiritual summary of the Old Testament history of the Jewish people. Yeah, and it was, uh, it, and it's really quite fascinating. In chapter ten, was a list of those who entered into the covenant with God that day, and chapter, uh, and, and also in that chapter are the obligations of the covenant, uh, verses twenty-eight through thirty-nine. And I'd like to just quickly look there. Uh, Verse 28 of chapter 10 of Nehemiah says, The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands of the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers and the nobles and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law. Well, that that sounds harsh to us in one sense, a curse and an oath. But the idea is, if you keep my word, you'll be blessed. If you fail to keep my word, you'll be cursed. Now, the idea of curse here is, is, is you'll be pushed aside. You won't have a familiarity or a closeness with God. And uh, 
one of the things that they were told not to do was that they were not to give their daughters in marriage to anybody but a Hebrew. Nor were their sons to marry anybody but a Hebrew girl. And there was other issues that were, were brought up uh, that they were to do and, and to keep. Obligations of the covenant. And they agreed. They said, this we will do. Kind of sounds like Deuteronomy where the people who, after hearing everything said, this we will do. And then they didn't. Chapters 11 and 12 of, of Nehemiah talk about the dedication of, of the wall. And uh, the actual dedication is recorded in chapter 12 starting with the 27th verse. In uh, the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness with thanksgiving and with singing with cymbals and harps and lyres. And the sons of the singers gathered together from the, the distant surrounding Jerusalem and uh, districts surrounding Jerusalem and from the villages uh, and, and also from Beth Gilgal and from the region of Geba and, and it just goes on. All these people bringing them in and, and these leaders in Judah and, and from all over the place to celebrate and they had choirs and 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 musicians, and I, I, I and and they literally marched around the <laughs> the city. And I thought this is the opposite of what happened in Jericho. You know, they're you know everything has been raised up, and they're celebrating it rather than wanting to tear it down. And and uh, then you know this great celebration going on. I'd like to just stop at chapter 12. And it was interesting. I, I was, I, I'm not in, in, uh, I, I'm in good company. A number of, of, uh, uh, people that I, I use to get, uh, information from and, you know, some of their ideas, I think, uh, of, uh, Ray Steadman and, and uh, uh, some others, uh, they all say the same thing. It, it's too bad it just didn't stop at chapter 12 with that celebration and all the good music. Because chapter 13 is a big downer. So I want to look at the, just a little bit of detail at chapter 13. And in doing so, I want you to understand uh, something that, that, that happened here. Um, I'm actually going to go down to verse 6 and and read it first so that you understand where I'm going to be going with this. While this was taking place, something that was not good, while this was taking place, and this is again Nehemiah speaking, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king, and after some time I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem and then I discovered the evil that Elishab had done for Tobiah. Now, Tobiah, going back to chapter 2, you'd find Tobiah was a, uh, one of these uh, renegades who, who he was an Ammonite and very much against 
the restoration work. Okay, now let's go back to chapter 13, verse 1. On the day they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Now before this, Elishab the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, and who was related to Tobiah. What that means is that somebody married someone's daughter or some daughter married someone's son here, but he's related. Tobiah is an in-law, so to speak. And so what he did, listen to what uh, Elisha the priest did. He prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. This is a spot that's located with, uh, in reference to the temple. This is where the storage of, of, of stuff is kept that is used for offering and different things and, and for the payment to the Levites and to the priests. And, and, and it was completely emptied and turned into a living place for Tobiah. So listen to it. He says, I came to Jerusalem, verse 7, and then discovered the evil that Elisha had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. Now, again, these Ammonites and Moabites and others are not even to be near the temple. Look at his response, Nehemiah. And I was very angry. And I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. And then I gave orders and they cleansed the chambers. And I brought back that, uh, there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them. Why? Well, because it was gone. And so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to the field to his field. So I conformed the, uh, confronted the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and then in their stations. Then all Judah uh, brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed his treasurers over the storehouses, Shelemiah and uh, the priest and Zadok the scribe and, and Pedadiah of, of the Levites. And it goes on. And, uh, then a little prayer that he throws up at the end of this. Remember me, O my God. This is Nehemiah. Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of the God, for the house of my God, and for His service. In other words, I've done all of this 
Lord, I ask in You to protect it, to keep it, and not, and not allow it to get wiped out. Can you imagine what it must have been like for him to come in and see uh, a, his enemy, an Ammonite at that, uh, who was, had threatened him, slandered him, uh, wrote an uh, untrue letter about him uh, that he was going to present to the king himself uh, that made it look like uh, the Nehemiah was going to uh, do an overthrow of, of, of the, for Jerusalem. And it just goes on and, and he finds that this is what's happened. But I'm wondering what it was like for Tobiah to come back and open the door and see it full of, of, of all the stuff that had been removed to let him live there and all his stuff was thrown out. I love it. I would like to. I wish I could see his face. You know, you know how he must have reacted to that. The Levites got paid. Tobiah is thrown out. Uh, by the way, the Sabbath was being abused. They were they were working on the Sabbath. They were selling on the Sabbath. There was people coming in from out of the area that were non-Jewish. Uh, bringing their wares and their fish and their food and selling it, and it was being bought and sold on the Sabbath. So he closed the gates, put guards on them, and basically said they are to be closed on, uh, the, an hour before the Sabbath begins and not open until after the Sabbath ends. And he restored a semblance of order there. In the marrying of foreign women, there was still a problem. And as I come to this, it's one of those sets of verses that you, you, you read somewhat reluctantly. In those days also, I, Nehemiah, saw the Jews who had married women of Ashad, uh, Ashdod, uh, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashad, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them, meaning he, he not swore at them, but cursed them and said, God, uh, have his way with you, so to speak. And I beat some, and I pulled out their hair. Sounds pretty harsh. But what he was doing was making a point. And it is harsh. But the wrath of God is much harsher than this. What he was doing was just simply clearing out and letting them know that this was not going to be tolerated. You shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon the king do such a thing and it messed things up for him? It says, one of the sons of, of Jehoadiah, verse 28, the son of Elishab, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sambalat the Horonite. He was a friend of Tobiah. They had been in cahoots together. Therefore, look what he does. He says, I chased him. I chased him from me. What it implies is that he chased him out of the city. Remember then, oh my God, because... They have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. 
Thus I cleansed them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and the Levites, each in his work. And I provided for the wood offering at the appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O my God, for good. It's not something we're used to hearing, uh, a harsh reaction to something, and then I thought, wait a minute. Something that would blow us away today if we saw it happen. Jesus, also around the temple, says, you've turned this place into a den of thieves. And he went through and turned over the tables and the money changers' tables and things went flying. He made a, a, a cord, made a whip from a cord and was knocking things over with it and stuff like that. Sometimes we see the wrath of God come out. And it's not like I, I'm advocating that, that pastors should ever do anything like that or anything, but there is a point in time where what it's saying is, is that we have to confront sin for what it is and take at least a stand. I want to encourage you. I think we're, we're moving into times and, and, and have been probably almost all my life uh, but it seems to be getting worse and worse in the sense of, of, of what we as a church are going to have to be noted for standing for. And, and uh, I feel our bylaws are very strong in this. You know, and and uh, we, we took care all that time to write those bylaws so that, that people would know they could read our bylaws and see we are an evangelical, Bible-based church believing in the Word of God and the God of all creation. And uh, I want to suggest to you that, that, that this was a picture of that same kind of thing going on. A cleansing, a cleaning, a, a, a reviving of the people in such a way that God's Word spoke to them with understanding so that they could hang on to it instead of the, the world that they had come out of. And, and uh, as we have to deal within the framework of the world today, we find uh, a lot of things difficult to deal with. So the church becomes and should be our sanctuary, our refuge, and a place
Take me past the outer court and through the holy place, past the brazen altar. Lord, I want to see your face. Pass me by the crowds of people and the priests who sing their praise. I hunger and thirst for your righteousness, but it's only found in one place. Take me into the holy of holies. Take me in by the blood of the Lamb. Take me into the holy of holies. Take the cold, cleanse my lips. Here I am. Take me past the outer courts and through the holy place, past the brazen altar. Lord, I want to see your face. Pass me by the crowds of people and the priests to sing their praise. I hunger and thirst for your righteousness, but it's only found in one place. Take me into the holy of holies. Take me in by the blood of the Lamb. Take me into the holy of holies. Take the coal, cleanse my lips. Here I am. Take me into the holy of holies. Take me in by the blood of the Lamb. Take me into the holy of holies. Take the coal, cleanse my lips. Isaiah used the phrase when he was taken into the presence of the Lord. He says, is he recognized?